welcome to Themis Podcasts. Themis is a risk management firm specialising in financial crime. Our aim of these podcasts is to bring you interesting news, interviews and recordings of our exclusive events from the world of financial crime. In episode one, we bring to you a recording from a lecture we hosted in association with Dow Jones. An audience with Bradley Hope, co-author of Billion Dollar Whale, a book that delves into the detail of the 1MDB scandal. Named a best book of 2018 by the Financial Times and Fortune, this thrilling New York Times bestseller exposes how a modern Gatsby swindled over $5 billion with the aid of Goldman Sachs in the heist of the century in order to build an extravagant lifestyle and fund movies such as The Wolf of Wall Street. Bradley Hope was one of the key journalists of The Wall Street Journal who uncovered the scandal, and this lecture gives exclusive insight into how he uncovered this unbelievable story. The lecture is introduced by Themis CEO Dickon Johnston, and the interview with Bradley Hope is hosted by Thorold Barker, EMEA editor of The Wall Street Journal. Good afternoon. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you to our latest financial crime lecture and our first of 2020. We're delighted to bring you all here to engage in these discussions, both to hear a fascinating story and engage with business leaders across a whole range of sectors, but also because this scandal does an excellent job of highlighting the scale and nature of financial crime and the impact that it has on not just our economy, on our businesses, but also on society as well. Because in addition to the hijinks between the, behind the 1MDB scandal, it's easy to forget the human impact that this grand-scale theft has had on people, particularly, in this case, on the Malaysian people. It's the hospitals and schools that are not built, the infrastructure that falls apart, and the rule of law that is undermined. And that is why we all need to be talking about financial crime, not because a regulator told us so, but because we as leaders of financial institutions, of law firms, of accountancy firms, technology platforms, art houses, auction houses, property dealers, we, all of us, we need to be cutting off the mechanisms that criminals need to hide and transfer their illicit money around the world. As business leaders, we need to drive this message from the top to champion a culture within our organisations that is one of questioning and not one of turning a blind eye, as we've seen so often in this 1MDB story. We need to build the right checks and balances that will pick all of these activities up so that there is no room within our businesses for criminals to hide the proceeds of their crime. At Themis, our mission is to reduce the impact of financial crime, and we do this both through our day-to-day -day business and through our charitable trust. We help our clients identify and manage their financial crime risk, and we do this through our advisory, technology, and outsourcing services. But in addition, we hope that by hosting events such as these, doing the research we do and the insight and intelligence that we share between the public and private sectors, we can also drive greater awareness, 
and understanding of the issues. As part of our rich financial crime ecosystem, we're delighted to work with and partner with our co-host tonight. So Dow Jones Risk and Compliance Division is a global provider of data and technology solutions for both regulatory and third-party risk management solutions. Many of you in the room will have used their data and their technology within your financial crime infrastructures, and I fully support and, and promote them as excellent providers of both content and data technology. Now to the main event, the reason you're all here tonight. So I'm delighted to introduce you all to our guest speaker today, Bradley Hope. Bradley is a brave and fearless reporter with the Wall Street Journal. Over the next 45 minutes or so, Bradley's going to tell the story from his vantage point, both as a reporter, but also his part in the unfolding investigation. I'd also like to welcome Thorold Barker, editor of the Wall Street Journal for Europe, Middle East and Africa, who will moderate this afternoon's discussion. We will have plenty of time for questions as well, so please get your hands at the ready. But ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Bradley Hope and Thorold Barker. Um, good evening everybody and welcome um, <clears throat> just before we kick off uh, I just wanted to add to this lovely introduction just um, give a little bit more detail on Bradley uh, this, this story which they uh, Bradley and Tom Wright and a few others well actually up to 30 different people from around the Wall Street Journal network reported um, uh, was the, one of our most important and um, impactful investigative pieces in recent years um, as a series of, of pieces for the Wall Street Journal where they were nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Um, sadly, the Pulitzer Committee made the wrong decision on that, but um, they were nominated, which is a huge achievement in itself. And of course, he wrote um, the book with Tom, uh, Billion Dollar Whale, which hopefully some of you have read. Any hands up for someone who's read the book? So a few of you have read the book, um, so you'll really appreciate the anecdotes and everything he talks about. For those of you who haven't, um, I would highly recommend it. It is a fabulous read and brilliantly reported. So um, welcome, uh, Bradley. Just to, just to kick off, can you um, give everyone in the room, particularly those who haven't read the book, a sense of what was the scandal? What, what really happened here? Well, for a long time, it was a pretty domestic scandal in Malaysia. There was this new sovereign wealth fund that had been created called One Malaysia Development Berhad. Berhad's sort of the ink of Malaysia. So, um, and One Malaysia was an election slogan of the Prime Minister, Najib Razak, at the time. And it, at the time, it was sort of, it, when, it, when it kind of launched, it was part of this new breed of sovereign wealth funds that were less about the kind of long-term patient investing. They were more about uh, aggressive, exciting investments to try to drive new sectors of the economy. Um, Abu Dhabi has one called Mubadala that was sort of the model for that. And so, you know, for us at the Journal, it started off uh, a few years into 1MDB, it started off, there was a lot of questions about this entity because it had raised an extraordinary amount of debt, um, billions of dollars, about, I think by that point, about $13 billion of debt, and it had no actual startup funds from the government. You know, you, when you think of a sovereign wealth fund, you think of the savings account of the country. So it wasn't like an oil, com an oil rich country that had a load of oil yeah, revenue it, putting into it. It wasn't like Norway has Norges, um, Abu Dhabi has Adia, which are the excess oil profits, you know, saving it for the future. 
um, OneMDB had, I think it had a one million ringgit startup capital and $13 billion of debt, essentially. Um, so that was, a, that was a, a question for us. It was, we were, we were worried about, I mean, people were worried in the financial community about its, its kind of precarious debt situation. Then, so that's, so I kind of think of it as, uh, what I'm trying to get at is a, um, an archipelago of things. They all kind of were out of the surface and we didn't understand how they all connected. So there was the debt problem. There was this story that we had broken. Our financial editor here in London, um, Alex Frangos, broke a story back in the day about how Goldman Sachs had made $600 million on its role in these bond placements. And that, that was setting off red flags for everyone. That there's, no, there's no way that um, a bank can make 10% of a bond proceeding you know, as a profit. It doesn't make sense. So there was that. So that's usually what less than one percent. Yeah, one percent or so. So yeah. there was the there was the the Goldman fees. There was the debt load. Then there was also some electoral scandals, and that was where my colleague Tom first got involved. He he saw that OneMDB had been buying these assets at an inflated price, and then the seller was kicking back some of the money into these very politically motivated uh, charities, and in a way that was a pretty big scandal on its own. But we later, that, that scandal was later completely overturned by the bigger scandal that was going on. So that's how it all began, those three kind of scandals. And as it happens with a, with a situation where there's a, a, a debt problem or missing money, people start, all of the bad things starts to surface up. And inside Malaysia, there had been an investigation into this fund, you know, in, in secret, really. And when they first saw Tom's story about that kickback scheme, uh, some of those documents started to flow to us about what had been going on, the bigger picture. And, and so from, those, from that archipelago of scandals, what emerged over time was that somewhere in the range of five, six, seven billion dollars were stolen wholesale from this fund, all of it borrowed, and used to fund one of the great spending sprees of all time. Um, the spending spree ranged from We'll go into the oh, detail yeah, yeah, of yeah, some of the exactly. um, it went from sort of <coughs> extraordinary yeah. uh, uh, examples um, that, that, that you have. But um, can you give a sense of when you realized you were onto something big, when you realized that this all linked up into a sort of much bigger story than these original little bits and pieces? So I got involved just after that first set of stories from Tom. Um, there was another story that came, sorry, the fourth part of the archipelago was a leaked document that showed that the Prime Minister of Malaysia had received into his private bank account $681 million. Um, it, it was unclear where that money came from. There was talk of a Saudi donation, but there was also a lot of m metadata around it that suggested that these things all connected at the bottom. You know? mm. So I got involved right after that story, and um, having lived in Abu Dhabi, I, I was drawn to the fact that there was a lot of Abu Dhabi connections, and I had a lot of resources to, to draw upon from my time there. And so the first story that I was involved in where it was we, we did sort of an analysis of one MDB's financial statements and then this other sovereign wealth fund in Abu Dhabi called IPIC, which had also had public financial statements. And on one side, one MDB said they had given all this money to IPIC. On the IPIC side, they didn't show it having been received, which is itself, uh, you know, a, a pretty, pretty big problem. But at the yeah. time, we didn't know was there some accounting issue? You know, you couldn't say definitively that that money had gone missing. And so when we, when we really finally had some reporting breakthroughs that showed actually, yes, 
about $2.4 billion had gone missing in transit to Abu Dhabi. And, and I, I think one moment in particular stands out for me is in, in our book we talk about this Malaysian source character that was trying to kind of convince us everything was fine. And in trying to prove it to us, they gave us a document that was a wire transfer document. And I, I used that document and I went to other sources and they said, look, yeah, there's money transferred. It says to Abar, which is a subsidiary of this Abu Dhabi fund. But look at the, look at the last three, the, the suffix, limited. There's no Abar limited in the corporate structure. So that led us to realize there had been a kind of a look-alike structure created. So they created a company yeah. that was the same name but a different. Okay. And all the, and this 2.4 billion had gone into there. And so when we broke that story, then I realized, okay, this is on another level. This is that was the first story where we could say money went missing from 1MDB, and it took a long time before we could say. And and, and thanks to many journals at the Journal, other journals at other newspapers, but also the DOJ, when they when they kind of used their powers to sort of make a lot of connections that we hadn't been able to make yet. Then we saw that all these these scandals were connected, you know. So it was the fact that we had people in all these different places around the world allowed us to triangulate yeah, some of this. Yeah, we had a full-time Malaysia team, we had a very strong Asia team in Hong Kong, and then, and also Tom and I, we traveled a lot. I mean, you know, Tom was going to Thailand, to Malaysia, different places. I went to China chasing Jolo. I went to Curacao, which is an offshore jurisdiction that was used for a lot of the money laundering. Um, so we were really, we aggressively pursued it. So how, I mean, with numbers this big, you talked about the 800 odd million that went into the Prime Minister's bank account, 2.4 billion that vanished in transit. I mean, it seems kind of preposterous, the, the scale of these numbers. I mean, how, how did they expect for this to, well, to get away with this effectively, for this to be able to continue when such big numbers were either appearing in bank accounts or vanishing? Well, in a way, the, the size of the numbers actually were, uh, were helpful to the scandal because I think probably a lot of the compliance officers sitting there seeing two billion go here, one billion go here, they didn't assume right away this looks like a fraud or a scam because it's just the numbers are too big, it's preposterous, as you say. Like, you know, it, this is clearly the work of sovereign funds interacting with each other. This isn't, this isn't some sort of criminal activity. So I think it actually helped them in the short run. So they got past a lot of questions from people because the answer, no, this is sovereign activity of Saudi Arabia, of Malaysia, of Abu Dhabi. Um, in the long run, it was the undoing of the scandal because it was an unsustainably large fraud. If they had stolen uh, one billion, maybe we wouldn't have heard anything about 1MDB, but when it got to two, three, four, five, and it started getting out of control and there was no underlying you know, way to kind of cover it up in the long run, that's when it all started to fall apart. And we'll, and we'll get into a minute what assets were bought and some of the parties that were thrown and other things, but why was there not an audit that said so-and-so's been raised and we don't seem to have the assets in the fund to match that yeah. in any form? I mean, 1MDB, if in the line of work of many of you people, is, is a great example of how everything possibly went wrong. You know, 1MDB itself went through, it, it, it had three auditors. Each time an auditor pressed on a button and said, oh, can you answer the question about this? They just got a new auditor. And there was, you know, quietly without any real announcement. And then the new auditor would be a little bit more acquiescent. And then there'd be, and then even when they asked a question, then there'd be a third auditor, you know? So, and, and if you really study the financial statements as well, there's a lot of things hiding in plain sight for that, for that fund. I mean, we had a lot of fund just forensically going through that because it, it had a lot, it, it opened a lot of questions about the fund. Um, so that's just, 
that's just with the auditors. I mean, there's and then, then all across the board, from small banks to large banks, compliance officers sort of failed to stop this thing from moving. There was questions raised, red flags uh, identified, but no, nobody ever pressed the stop button. And in part, it's because um, what I like to say is the great generosity of Joe Lowe, the, the alleged you know, ringleader of this fraud, he was willing to part with 10% of the bond proceeds to this bank and high fees to that bank. And everybody was, their lives were being transformed by this wealth. And that's, I think that's another real feature of this what scandal. Do people, people tend to be willing to go along with it when they're getting rich enough and feel at arm's length enough to not be too concerned. Well, about even, even easier than that, because in a sense, uh, I, I would say, based on my experience, if a, if a criminal goes to somebody who's not yet a criminal and says, hey, you want to join my conspiracy, they tend to be a little reticent. But if, if the criminal goes to them and says, hey, I'm not a criminal, I'm just very generous, and here's a million dollars for your troubles, and then suddenly that person's got a million dollars, and that's uh, you know 100 times any money they had before. If they were to kind of now turn their backs on this guy, they're saying, oh, wow, my whole new life is a fraud too, and I have to give it all back, and I have to change. And he did that time and again, you know, there would be, and he knew the price that was needed to have a, a transformative amount of wealth. So even his personal assistant, um, this woman, he found her, she was a Las Vegas croupier, and one day he sort of plucked her out and said, no, now you're, you're like the international high-flying executive assistant of me, and you know, you're, you're a millionaire too, and you're gonna fly in private jets and live in, in splendor. And so it's hard to turn on, on the benefactor of such a thing. So where there's not she, a lot of- Where is she now? <laughs> she, MIA, she's out, out there with Jolo somewhere. Um, but you, you find that a lot of the people were very reluctant to, to admit what happened. And, and in fact, one problem with 1MDB, one part that makes you a little bit cynical is there's not a lot of heroes in this story. Mm-hmm. There's not a lot of heroic whistleblowers. And even the whistleblowers themselves are, you know, they have some problematic aspects, so. And was there just, I mean, A, was there just no transparency in terms of public accounts and reports that just, you know, showed that there was nothing here? I mean, what on earth did the annual report of this thing that presumably went to the public as a public fund actually say if there was no yeah. assets in it? I don't really understand. Well, so what would happen is, so the money would, would, would part from 1MDB through a, usually through a kind of fake joint venture. and there would be a kind of, uh, a lot of extensive paperwork that shows that the money is in X, Y, and Z places. It just turns out that X, Y, and Z places were actually empty of the money. The money had been, had right. flown in a very, flowed in a very complex way. So there were the, assets shown, they just Yeah, it would say something like, it would say, um, uh, 1MDB had, we, we have investments in these investment companies. And there's one in particular, the, the, one of the most famous ones in the scandal, which was, um, it was called Bridge Global. It was this Cayman Islands fund where they, they, they thought they had you know, somewhere like $2.2 billion. It turns out they had nothing in those funds. But on paper, and what they would represent to the auditors was, these, these are um, special shares of an opaque investments. And, and when the auditors asked, What's, what are the underlying assets? They said, oh, it's confidential. You know. So it turned out to be a... So give us a sense of some of the more... Um eye-catching yeah. um, stuff. Yeah, I, I think that's probably the only reason people care about 1MDB is that it's so cinematic in the, in the, the spending of wealth. Um, so obviously there's this guy at the center called Joe Lowe. He's, he was just a, a young Malaysian guy with 
with no track record of any kind, never had a real job in his life. And he started showing up at nightclubs in, in, in New York City, in London, in Paris, in Monaco, just spending more money than anybody could remember, uh, you know, to the point where he started off in the hundreds of thousands, and by the end, he was easily dropping $2 million in one night. And that On would be how do, you, so, how do you do that? Well, it's easy to do at a casino. <laughs> yeah. It, really, the other way we could have written the book is how to spend it, you know. But um, if you're at a if you're at a casino, it's not too hard. Sure. You know. Sure. So he so he would he had a. But a, you have examples of bars. Yeah. So yeah. So the nightclubs, even the so what's what's interesting about one MDB is Joe Lowe actually transformed nightclubs. He, he showed up on the scene right in the, in the kind of tail end of the financial crisis. All the big bankers had stopped going out, spending what was then outrageous sums, which would be tens of thousands of dollars. Joe Lowe showed up at these clubs. They, they actually jumped on him and said, anything you want, anything you can imagine, we will provide everything. You know? so, so from that point on, any party he wanted, they would fly an elephant in if they needed to. They would do anything they needed to do. So, but the nightclubs and, and other people started imitating him. They started having to create a new menu to be able to cater for such spending in one night because there's no way you can actually spend $2 million on actual champagne in a night. So they had to create sort of like experiences around it. So what they would do is, is you, you, know, you kind of essentially select you know, the, the platinum option and that would, that would usually entail a parade of, of scantily dressed women coming out with sparklers and champagne. Sometimes there would be other things added to it. It would be kind of almost like a show, you know? And everybody in the room would know you're the guy that just spent, you know? And it would be all about the ostentatious spending of it. And, and, and sometimes Joe Lowe would be in a, in a club where there would be a, a rival Joe Lowe there, and then it would be kind of a, a competition. So they'll say, oh, uh, Joe, you know, uh, our Malaysian benefactor just spent Two hundred and fifty thousand dollars on on champagne, and then like playing maybe some music that that person selected or whatever, and then a few minutes later it would be the rival. Oh, you know, Mr. Pakistan is, is in the house, and now he spent a quarter of a million, um, and it would go on like that until until it starts getting a little bit out of control, and they and they don't have any more champagne left, you know. Um, and how and what was the sort of celebrity angle on this? Yeah, because some of that money went on having the right people in the room. Yeah, so yeah, so he spent his money on. On lifestyle, I mean, we we like to say that at one point he was the most liquid person on earth, because even the richest people on earth they don't have usually hundreds of millions of dollars of cash on hand, and he had hundreds of millions of dollars of cash on hand, and he was spending it at a rate that was just unprecedented, really. So he would spend it on private jets and yachts and renting a hundred thousand dollar apartment here and a hundred thousand dollar apartment there, um, and then he started getting, I guess, a bit bored. He wanted to hang out with interesting people, so he started using the money to, to hire celebrities to hang out. So that's when he started paying people like Paris Hilton to come and be at his parties or even spend even a period of days with him of a series of parties. You know, there's a famous one where he did that in Paris and in France where they had some time off the south of France and they had times in Paris. They were on a boat in the Seine. Uh, you know, he even paid to have the Eiffel Tower's color change briefly for a period of time. Um, there's a price for everything, it turns out. So what color? It was pink. He was with Paris Hilton, you know, I trying see. to impress her. Um, he, but so, so some celebrities you can pay to show up, and some celebrities you have to be a little bit more creative. So he was interested in this whole world of Leonardo DiCaprio. And so for him, he was a source of film financing. So Leonardo DiCaprio didn't actually want to spend time with Jolo, I, I don't think. But, but when Jolo said, listen, I, will, I have $400 million I want to spend on films, and you're my guy, suddenly 
Jolo is being thanked at the, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure which award ceremony it was, but he, he got up on stage and said, thanks, Joe. You know, he, he even mentioned him there. And um, the most famous, most ironic part of OMGB is they fully financed the Wolf of Wall Street film. <laughs> which has some similar scenes, possibly, in it, yeah. if you've watched and, it. And uh, there's one anecdote I like to remember about that, which is there was, a, there was an, an afternoon where there was a lunch with Joe Lowe, and there was Jordan Belfort, and Leonardo DiCaprio, and a bunch of other people there. And they were listening in rapt attention to Jordan Belfort kind of tell his tales of exploits, you know? The time that I did this, the time that I did that. And meanwhile, Joe Lowe is just sitting there quietly listening, you know, oh, that's interesting, you know? Like, I outdid your fraud by like 25 times at least, you know? But he didn't, he didn't mention anything at the time, but. But that was not a bad investment. I mean, that film did quite well, yeah. yeah. Well, it's not a bad investment. I don't think that anybody knew that necessarily, but, and also none of the money went back to 1MDB. Oh. So, uh, all, and also, I'm not even sure how much money went back to the film production company. There's a little concept called Hollywood accounting that I learned about, which is basically somehow any film that's made, no matter how successful, hardly anybody makes any money off of it. It, it, it kind of filters out in different ways to people that you didn't expect, you know, different production houses that are a bit savvy, you know. So I don't think actually Red Granite, the, the film production company, made that much money on it. Okay. So, so just on Joe himself, how did he get into this place? I mean, he, he was sort of, he was from Malaysia. He was educated in the UK. And he, um, he had some connectivity with these people. But how did he end up in this extraordinary position of wielding this massive fortune? He, I mean, I want to say he was not a, an unintelligent person. He was, he was quite savvy. He, from a very early age, had a, a, a deep affection for money and for the world of finance. And so even and for the trappings. Yeah, and for the trappings. So and he, was a, he, was a high, he was a big spender at a nightclub relative basis even before the 1MGB scandal. You know? So he was, even when he was in college, he was borrowing money from dad, who was a millionaire, but you know, not a hundreds of millionaire and using it to throw a huge party at Wharton, the likes of which Wharton students had never seen before, where he learned it out at a nightclub and there was um, naked women with sushi you know, on them and, and, uh, and, and you know, most of these students were used to going to the, the neighborhood bar and getting um, pitchers of beer, you know? So it was, a, it was a big thing for them. All of them, by the way, if you ever find one, they'll tell you, oh man, that was the craziest party I ever went to. You know, it, never, it never got any better than that for those, those poor college students. But, um, but also from an early age, he also exhibited a, a huge understanding of, of rich people and what makes them tick and what their desires might be because ultimately he took them all for a ride. You know, he used their names to kind of leverage up to the next thing. So when he first started, he had his own private equity company and he got all these young children of royals and things like that that he had come across to invest. And, and that was sort of, that was his skill. He wasn't really a structurer. He was the relationship guy, and he was—he could really convince people from uh, a major banker like Lloyd Blankfein met him, up you know to the prime minister of Malaysia, other prime ministers, down to the croupiers. He could convince people, you know, and but he also had a devious side from an early age, where we we depict in the book that he invited some of these friends back from Harrow to visit Malaysia, and he had been talking himself up at Malaysia about how he in at Harrow how he was a kind of a prince of Malaysia, um, which was absolutely not what he was. And when they came, he, he, he borrowed a, a very large yacht from a family friend, and he changed all the photos on it to his family. So they all, oh, wow, this is your yacht. Yeah, this is my family yacht. You know, but unbeknownst to them, it wasn't 
there you are, he borrowed it for the occasion. And, and unbeknownst to those people who went to the party at Warden, he didn't pay the bill for a long time to that nightclub. You know? He convinced them that he was a rich guy, but he kept not paying, and eventually they settled, and it was, you know, I think to this day they're a little bitter about that. So how much did, obviously the Malaysian Prime Minister was a beneficiary of this, and we'll talk a little bit about some of the implications of what happened, but um, how much did people really understand what was going on in terms of you know, the others around the edges and involved in this, and how much was it Jolo who was driving it with uh, you know, limited understanding, or was everybody aware of exactly what was happening? I mean, could you give a sense of that? Mm -hmm. I would say from all of my reporting that my conclusion is that there's concentric circles of, of culpability. In the center is Jolo as the mastermind, as the ringleader in the center. And I think nobody else had that level of knowledge except for him. And then from there, you find people that knew bits and pieces. They knew something wasn't going, something going on wasn't legal even, but they didn't know exactly what was going on. And I think it's important to think about that because I think none of the other conspirators would even join in with the scandal if they had known he was going to pursue it in such an unsustainable way. So the prime minister of Malaysia, for example, um, he's, he's actually on trial as we speak, and his wife's on trial, and every day there's news about the testimony going on in court. His now, his de facto position is that Joe Lowe conned him, essentially. So all that money he received in his account, it was, it was depicted to him and to others as a donation from Saudi Arabia, even though it, that was uh, a complete lie, but not a complete, complete lie, because there was a small donation from Saudi Arabia. And it, he just kind of took that small donation and then added all this other money that had been stolen from OneMDB on top of it. And, and I actually, personally, uh, I find it credible that he didn't know exactly what was going on at that moment, you know? So what happened to that amount of money? A large well, amount of money hit his account, the, the total which was a donation from Saudi yeah. Arabia. What was it a donation for, and what did he spend it on? I mean, that, does that give a sense? It, of it comes down to what is Jolo offering the Prime Minister of Malaysia? He got to know him through his, his son and, and through social, but, but eventually he said to him, I can deliver you things. And if you let me deliver you things, then you should let me control 1MDB kind of behind the scenes. And so what did he deliver? He needed to deliver him money for re-election. And in the way it had worked in Malaysia traditionally was businessmen, big businessmen, like any, maybe in any country really, had, would pool money together and they would support this ruling party. And Jolo said, actually, do you want to be really powerful? I'll get you money that you don't have any strings attached from, from this. I know the Saudi royal family very well and they would they'd love to send you a billion dollars. So he, and he, you know, he, it sounds preposterous, but he, he kind of made a convincing story because he did have some connections there. He was working with one of the partners and the original part of the scandal was a son of the then king of Saudi Arabia. So he, that's the kind of brilliance of the scandal, I guess you could say. And, and what was the mission that he laid out to the Prime Minister of what it was meant to do for Malaysia so, itself? Yeah, so that, money, so that money that went into his account was actually totaled $1.05 billion. That was mostly used for just campaigning. So he was distributing it across the country, buying votes essentially in various ways, you know. Um, and some of that money was returned back into the into Jolo's structure. So it was he didn't spend all of it. I think he spent maybe four. But did any of this money go into something beneficial for Malaysia? Were there any investments? No, there? not really. That money, that one billion, was only used for elections. And, and the, a little bit of his personal wealth, like he and bought. One MDB itself. And one MDB itself. So of that thirteen billion, it wasn't all stolen. And some of it was used to buy some power plants that were, the idea was to kind of consolidate them into a holding company. And that all happened, you know. Um, but in the end, 
and, and there's a, a new financial center was kind of launched. But in the end, the, the losses were, are, are bigger because those power plants, they had to sell them to the Chinese, uh, a Chinese investment conglomerate, at a, at essentially at a loss in order to plug the hole. And the hole, that's the, the kind of, I guess you could say the evilest thing to do is to steal someone's borrowed money because it's not just the borrowed money that's gone, it's the obligation to pay it. That means you have to take it from somebody else's, take it from the budget, you know? Mm -hmm. And so just a small example, you know, years later, the, all these Malaysian fishermen that used to get a subsidy from the government, they couldn't get that subsidy anymore because the government had to tighten the belt and make, start making payments on all these things. So I think, on the other hand, in the end, it could be that Malaysia doesn't do so badly because there's some so settlement. So tally it up. So, so how much was borrowed in total and put into the fund? I think about 13 billion. And how much has it got back at this point? Um, it's, 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 it's paid off much of its debt except for a final like six and a half, seven billion dollars. <laughs> and that, so that, those, are, those are the Goldman-backed bonds. Okay. And those are bonds where you pay interest every six months of 100 million total. And then at the end of the bond period, you pay the whole thing back. So is that there, are there any yet. more assets to sell or is that? No, there's basically. no more assets left really. So really the, the next question is will they have settlements? Yeah, so the, so the way that they might be able to pay off that debt, because that's essentially the hole that they have to fill. Um, there's, there's, there's a, uh, we've reported in the journal that Goldman Sachs is looking like it's gonna pay north of $2 billion, but that's not including a settlement separately with Malaysia itself. So that could be another sizable sum, you know, at least more than a billion, but we don't know how high that will get. There could be a settlement with Abu Dhabi itself too, because there's missing money, about half a billion went missing, ended up in the hands of uh, an Abu Dhabi individual. So that, that could be, so, that, so in the end, they may get three, four billion from that, process and then maybe, maybe there are there are still some assets related to real estate that they that they control that they might be able to monetize over the long run and pay it off you know it may not be too damaging on that that level but it has, it's been a hard ride for them you know and I think they're struggling to figure out how they're gonna get pay that whole thing off so we'll go to questions in one minute but I just what are the um, what are the lessons from this and, and could it happen again I mean could this sort of thing happen again today or have these loopholes been closed? I don't think any loopholes have really been closed. I mean, th there will be no copycat 1MDB tomorrow that will, because everybody will know, oh look, this looks like the 1MDB prototype, you know, that won't work anymore. But there will be a new Jolo who will find a new kind of pretty large gap in how things are, are policed, you know, because, it, it, because this is really one of those stories where it exists in the offshore world and, and where it's onshore, it has, you know, it, it's, it's so complex that it's very hard to police. If it wasn't for the US government, probably it wouldn't have gotten where we are now because of their, what people think is overly ambitious, but in this case, it was actually very helpful because they, they were stretching the jurisdiction because a lot of the money flowed through in dollars at one point through New York. Um, so I think the lesson is. Well, so if I this hadn't flowed through New York, it would have been yeah, I think if it, far more it, difficult to I do. I think if it wasn't done in dollars, which is hard to imagine, right. it would have, wouldn't have been policed this way. But if it wasn't, if the U.S. government didn't have the international kleptocracy initiative and the related international corruption squads that had just really formed not long before 1MDB, 
and this was their first big case. If it wasn't for that, it might have taken a lot longer to happen. You know, um, so I think my main lesson is is that if th there was many times where people, where a lawyer for Goldman Sachs said this doesn't make sense, or um, a, a compliance official or an auditor said this doesn't make sense, and but people just said, look, it, it kind of makes sense. Let's just go for it. You know, I think. If it doesn't make sense, if something doesn't make sense, then then you've probably got something, you know, and y you know you should pursue that further. I and mean, and have there been big changes around offshore finance or, or monitoring the way money moves on the back of this, or not really? Not really. And in fact, I would say the the, the sad side of OneMDB is there's still assets. There's even assets in London that haven't even been identified by any authority. Money that was assets here, houses and things that were bought with money that was derived from 1MDB. So, and then there's, you know, say Switzerland, for example, is pursuing a case, but they really haven't shown any signs of, a lot of these banks, their headquarters that were used in this case, their headquarters were in Switzerland. Um, one feature of this was they used these Swiss-based banks, but they used their Singapore branch. But the Singapore, sorry, the Switzerland branch uh, headquarters knew about what was going on, and it's been pretty slow going there. And it's slow to, to do this because there aren't enough enforcement people or because it's really complicated to I think it's hard for down. most countries in the world to pursue an international financial crime because for example Switzerland for years couldn't do anything because they sent an IMLAT a mutual legal assistance treaty request to Malaysia and which I've seen actually and it said we look we found this and it's like page upon page of just like mind-blowing details of the scandal and then the Malaysian Prime Minister's uh, Attorney General at the time wrote back saying, no, no, we've, we've checked this out and we didn't find any, any crimes. <laughs> so don't worry about that. So they didn't respond and by Swiss law, they can't bring charges against people for a crime that the host country refuses to acknowledge. Whereas in the US, they don't care if the host country acknowledges it or not, you know, because they, they say, if you've got a kleptocratic government, they're not going to acknowledge it. In fact, they're going to do whatever they can to not acknowledge it for a long time, which is what happened in Malaysia. You know, it, the Prime Minister of Malaysia didn't admit something went wrong until essentially the 10th day of his trial. And he said, well, yeah, actually, I admit there, there have been some issues. You know? And is there a sense that, that this is going on anywhere else as we speak? I mean, yeah, and I'd say it's probably going on places and, and people are, being, are less reckless about it. Joe Lowe was a reckless character. So the people who are doing it right now, they're doing it much better, and we're not catching it because it's actually thought through a little bit better, and, and the money laundering is a little bit higher quality. You know, um, Joe Lowe, he was, he was a little bit sloppy in the early days, and, and that, that so hurt So if you have any tips on this, do uh, grab yeah. Bradley afterwards. Um, final question for me, and then I'll go to questions, so please have them ready. Um, where's Joe Lowe now? The, well, we, we, we sort of lost track of him day to day, but our best understanding is he's in China. And the reason he's in China is that he, we won't get into it now, but he, he was essentially doing work for the Chinese intelligence apparatus around Malaysia, helping them control Malaysia and the foreign policy of Malaysia in exchange for money to the Prime Minister of Malaysia who used it to plug the hole so he didn't have to admit anything happened. And so he kind of has this ongoing safe haven in China, which is, you know, they're not helping Malaysia, they're not helping anybody else. They're just letting him live there. Okay, great. Um, I think we have some microphones, I hope, here in the back. Would, does anyone have a question for Bradley at this point? I hope there must be a question here at the front, and then here, and then here, and then there. Was it planned from its inception, or was it kind of an accident how this JLo character got involved? Or did he, was he pulling the strings at the start? 
so, so his use of 1MDB for his own benefit was planned from the start because he created 1MDB himself. Um, but I would say there was no blueprint for the whole scandal. Like they kind of, they took their first billion and they said that was pretty easy and then they kind of kept going from there, you know? So there wasn't, there wasn't like a number they had on a piece of paper like, okay, when we get to five, that's, we're good. You know, they just sort of kept going until the whole thing fell apart, to be honest. Uh, there's another question in the middle, and then there was one here, if we can get it. Thank you. Um, if you look at the, the front page of the FT today, um, there's a company, a FTSE 100 company, that's involved in a form of scandal. And you mentioned Abu Dhabi. They're an Abu Dhabi business. And it comes down to shareholders and shareholdings. What, you know, what's the, the power today and, and the resourcing that the likes of the FCA and regulators have to be able to to monitor and, and take action in these situations? I mean, you mentioned the DOJ, but you know, from a UK perspective, is there a, a concern that there isn't the resourcing available to, to monitor these situations? Yeah, I would say certainly the resources are, are infinitesimal compared to the, this kleptocracy initiative. You know, I, I think I read somewhere that the annual budget for the NCA's international uh, financial crime is about a million pounds a year or something. But also the UK, just be, because of the nature of the philosophy of law here, they don't have a good s setup to be able to pursue conspiracies. So how do they get to the point where they're confidently pursuing cases in the US? They essentially flipped people and then they're you know, at, the, at, the, at, at even middle levels of the fraud. So the, the, the most famous is the Goldman Sachs executive who is a partner. You know. Um, a very powerful person, and that guy admitted everything in court, and he's hopeful to not go to prison for very long. But those kind of tools are useful for any kind of conspiracy or a gang or whatever it might be, organized crime. And I, I often feel here that it's, it's, it's the kind of place where, it, I, I'm sad to say, it's a great place to be a financial criminal. Because on one level, you have relatively weak uh, enforcement powers. Even though there are improvements, like those unexplained wealth orders and things like that, that's a, that's a, that would say that goes in the face of the old philosophy of law, where, I mean, to be honest, where you're innocent until proven guilty. In that case, you're guilty until you prove innocent. But it's a powerful and useful tool. But also you have, for example, a, a, a unique group of people that I'm very familiar with, which are called uh, libel lawyers. And, and, and they, 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 they're kind of like a festering mass here in, in London. And they, they are really, they make their money on these kind of cases because they represent the guy who's a fugitive from law, from all countries, but yet they can harass newspapers, make them feel like they're gonna have a multi-million pound court battle. And many newspapers here, they couldn't afford such a battle. And they have almost a kind of trauma from previous libel cases in the past. So you know, I, I say if you meet a, a great British investigative reporter, they'll tell you over drinks about all the stories they couldn't print. Whereas if you meet a great American investigative reporter in America, they'll tell you about all the stories they couldn't prove, which is a better problem to have, you know? So, so that's my very bleak uh, And to what extent is the dollar important in this, the ability for the US to pursue crimes yeah. related to the use of dollars around the world? For so long as the dollar is the fiat currency, they will always have that ability. And also the Southern District in Manhattan, the Eastern District in Brooklyn, those two offices alone account for some of the most ambitious and, for many countries, irksome cases because they're willing to take a shot at any case. You know, even Abraj Capital. You know, it's this fund in Dubai 
there they lead the way you know it, it, on all those cases because they just say if you if you transact in dollars it will come through New York there's no way around it it has to come through New York so um, they can just get into any case they want and a lot of people make a lot of mistakes too these criminals they'll use like Gmail accounts or something and they'll just go straight to Google and subpoena them and get all the emails you know so um, I think I'm not saying I, I wouldn't say that I'm trying to overly boast about the US justice system which has many problems as well as any country but when it comes to this it's actually quite effective you know every major financial crime whether it's FIFA um, 1MDB it's always the same group that are doing those cases you know okay uh, question here in the middle and then we'll go to the back Actually, my question was about the unexplained wealth orders, which you just mentioned, but can I just press you on that? Because it is quite a big issue in the UK right now, because it's, a case, it's the first case to go to the court. So do you think that will make a difference, a significant difference? Because it's being played up here as a significant new legal tool. I, I mean, I think it will make a difference. Probably it will, it's like, like anything like this, it will, it will um, filter out the, the absolutely brazen criminals, but everybody else from the middle part up are are hiring the new class of consultants, I'm sure, that exists in London, the unexplained wealth order consultants, who are, who are rapidly creating websites and uh, you know, backstories and all that sort of thing. So it won't be complete. It, won't be, it can't be by itself a powerful tool, but it, it might just make it a little bit less comfortable to just pour your money in here without even thinking it through. You know? So it'll probably have an effect. Question at the back, and then any more? And then one here, and then We'll see if we have time. Okay. Hello. Oh, there we go. Sorry. First of all, congratulations on an incredible story um, and a fantastic book. I, I'm not sure if you said you had actually met him or not, but I was just curious. I have one serious question, not so serious question. The first one is around um, the psychology behind the whole thing. I know you're probably not a psychologist, but how much of this is like, his amazing influence and charisma versus people's just pure greed. Um, so whether you're talking Goldman Sachs or Leonardo DiCaprio, was it more his charm or more their greed that led them that way? And the second less serious question, but I really do want to know the answer to, it clearly will become a movie, so who would you like to play you in the movie? <laughs> <laughs> you can pick anyone. So on the psychological question, I would say, you know, um, Pure greed was a major factor for everyone. Like, and, and the other thing that's kind of surprising about 1MDB is unex, unexpected people are, are still greedy. No matter how much money you have, you can still be greedy. So in, in this story, there's people who are billionaires who are greedy for an extra 500 million that they don't have to work very hard for. And I learned part of that problem is they're not as liquid as Joe Liu was at that time. They maybe all of their assets are in like horse farms that are, are cost centers, really not um, profit making. Um, and then huge tracts of land. So they may be billionaires on paper, but they don't have billions on, in cash. So if you want to buy that $500 million yacht, you've got you know, to find that $500 million. I would say psychologically, though, the thing about Joe Lowe that I think is, is important is that he is extremely calm in the face of massive stress, extremely compartmentalized, and also had the ability to tell 10 different people a different variation of what was going on and keeping it all straight in his head to some extent. So I mean, without those, I wouldn't want to call them talents, but, but you know, I would say features, I, it would have been much harder for him to keep this going. I mean, if you just imagine the stress of what he's doing, and he's not even dealing with 
people who are, um, he's dealing with people who are dangerous to some extent. People, other rich people, other people who are even criminals. He was in that whole world, you know. And it's amazing to think that he would not sort of buckle under all that stress. He, he is, though, a bit of a stress eater, we found in our reporting, that he would, he had a, um, a predisposition towards large buckets of KFC when stressed. But um, <laughs> as for the movie, so yeah, we, we, we um, were working with the production company that did Crazy Rich Asians. And they thought, oh, this sounds like our, our kind of thing. Um, we, we don't have any news yet, but they're trying to, they're trying to move it forward. We're, hope, we're hopeful soon. And um, if you read the book, you'll notice that I'm not much of a character because we tried to tell the story. A lot of it happened before we existed, you know? I mean, not existed, before we existed in the story. So we went back in time and told the story through the characters themselves. So we show up at the end. So I, I, I would say. But do you have an answer for the question? I don't think so. Brendan Fraser? My mom says I look like him. <laughs> um, okay, so we'll, have, we'll do one more question. <laughs> if, 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 was there one in the middle here to, to end on? I think the lady here in the middle. Can we get her a microphone? You mentioned right at the beginning uh, about the initial publication of your story in the journal and um, lots of, uh, let's say, whistleblowers feeding information through. So I'm just interested in your sources there and yeah. who they were and how they were involved and what their access was. So uh, obviously can't say exactly who they are, but essentially in Malaysia, Malaysia wasn't a kind of terrible kleptocratic country at that, at that moment. They had real institutions and they had gotten wind through their own whistleblowers internally and through just monitoring flows of money that something weird was going on here. So the central bank, the corruption authority, the police, they had a joint, a secret task force that was investigating Jolo, investigating how the prime minister got this money. They were preparing papers to indict the prime minister, the sitting prime minister. But in a kind of night of a thousand knives moment, the prime minister got rid of everybody and killed the investigation and put a new guy in charge of it and who found nothing. Oh, wow, nothing's going on here. Um, so the people that were connected to that investigation felt a duty to Malaysia. And we even say in the, in the book, one of the, the passwords, the document was save Malaysia. You know, And I thought that was actually quite a poignant detail, that that, that was what they were thinking when they were sharing these documents with each other. So eventually, we were able to, to take possession of their investigative file, which was itself quite incomplete because they only were able, to, they were asking other countries about things, but they were still pretty early on the, on the scandal. Um, the other big whistleblower is this guy who worked at the Saudi company, he's called Xavier Justo, and he had a very dramatic story about you know, getting arrested in Thailand and all this stuff. Um, and he essentially provided the entire database of emails of that company. And there's many other whistleblowers, big and small, you know, the longer you work on something, the more likely you are to find them, and the more likely they are to find you. So people just whistleblowing on all aspects of it. So, but those are the kind of the main ones, I'd say. Brilliant. Well, look, um, I don't want to drag on. We're, we've gone way beyond our time, but um, Bradley will be here, I think, for a few minutes. So please grab him um, if you uh, if you want to do that. But thank you all very much, and thank you to, to Bradley. Thank you, Thorold. Are you coming? Hi. Um, so Guy Harrison, I'm the general manager for Dow Jones Risk and Compliance. I just wanted to say thank you again to Bradley and Thorold for a fantastically insightful interview.
Um, I think a few things really stood out for me. One, uh, what did you, s you said? It was the greatest spending spree of all time, which I think shows that we've got quite a long way to go in terms of preventing financial crime. You watch these movies and the gangsters all hide up, dividing the assets. They say, right, nobody's allowed to buy a car or a house for a long time. Jolo hadn't seen those films. Um, I think also, you know, not just the scale of the fraud, but you said everything that was possible to go wrong in compliance programs went wrong. No one pressed the stop button. Uh, and also this concept of concentric circles of culpability, that it wasn't just Joe Lowe and the people who were actively engaged in it, but all the people around them who enabled this massive fraud to be perpetrated. And I think we can say that you know, the pressure on companies not only to stay on the right side of the law, but to do what's right has never been greater. Um, and I think you know, at Dow Jones, we believe the best way to deal with this pressure is to deal with the facts, whether that's the fantastic investigative reporting of the Wall Street Journal or the data that we produce in Dow Jones Risk and Compliance. Um, it's essential for identifying and stopping the perpetration of these frauds. Um, I think also I'd like to just say thank you all for, for coming as well. Compliance officers are on the front line of preventing these heinous things from happening, bribery, corruption, terrorist financing, uh, buying Paris Hilton drinks and turning the Eiffel Tower pink. Um, you know, so thank you all for your commitment to this shared purpose. Uh, thank you all for attending. Final thank you to our partners at Themis. Um, I think what you're doing, not only in terms of producing these fantastic thought leadership events, um, but also the practical support that you're giving us to Dow Jones Risk and Compliance is, is just great. Um, I think you're building a very valuable network. Um, so thank you to all you do as well. Thank you for listening to episode one of the Themis podcasts. We hope you found it interesting and informative. Themis helps organizations mitigate the risk and impact of all forms of financial crime. If you would like to find out more about Themis, get in touch with us via our website, www.crime.financial. Thank you for joining us, and please subscribe for future news and interviews.